This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. St. Thomas Aquinas on truth. The challenge of teaching contemporary students today, I taught for a number of years in an undergraduate institution here in the US, is that sometimes you will meet people on campus who will say something like this, and maybe you've heard this, well, that may be true for you, but it's not true for me. Uh, and in fact, in the classroom or on campus, before you can really make any progress, sometimes, you have to establish that there is such a thing as objective truth. And there are, uh, you know, some people who, who may question, now probably not, um, not a typically questioning whether there are scientific facts. Uh, most people would be willing to admit that there are scientific truths out there. Um, but there is often a great reluctance to make stronger claims, certainly when it comes to moral claims. Uh, about uh, what is true. Now, this may be changing, um, and there may just be a uh, you know a certain social justice uh, or progressive movement where you know we we're very sure that we're on the right side of things, and then we would have to ask, well, how do we know the truth, and what is its nature? Um, it's it's helpful to recognize, uh, for example, that um, the law. I was a lawyer before I became a Dominican. Um, that the law makes judgments all the time about what is right and wrong. In fact, it's unavoidable in the law. And the claim really ultimately is that these are based somehow in something real and that it's okay. In fact, it's even good for the public authority to punish people who transgress the law. So sometimes the cash out is very real if you end up in prison for theft or murder or something like that. But it's even the case with things like environmental regulations that we're making a judgment about uh, what is good and what is bad, and therefore what activities are right and what activities are wrong. So there, there actually are claims about, you might say, moral truth that surround us all the time. And that we talk about all the time in our uh, in our culture, even though we don't necessarily label them that way. Um, but to see that that's actually going on is is helpful. Uh, so let's talk about uh, what is the what is the truth, or what are the challenges to a classical understanding like uh, that of Saint Thomas Aquinas about the nature of the truth. And one major, you might say, more uh, intellectual challenge, which comes in a, a lot of different flavors, a lot of different varieties, uh, falls under the heading of relativism. You've probably heard something about this before. You perhaps have, been, have encountered it in uh, more or less formal ways, more or less formally articulated ways. There's a lot of different varieties. Um, at least in the US, we find them on contemporary university campuses. Um, according to a standard form of cultural relativism, just to try and get the objections out there in front of us, cultural relativism would, would make a claim like this, right and wrong depends on what the dominant culture says, or uh, right and wrong depends on what you are conditioned to believe by social forces or your religious background or cultural forces. 
In other words, it's contending that there's no standard of right and wrong that transcends your culture. It's all culturally dependent or culturally conditioned. And therefore, you see the conclusion, it's relative to culture. It's not independent or objective in a strong sense. Uh, there's another version of this, which we could call historical relativism. It's closely, you know, it's like a permutation of cultural relativism. Uh, this would argue that right and wrong depends on what the morals or the ethical views or the cultural practices are in a certain historical period. So you, you hear this when people talk about, for example, at least here in the US, uh, the practice of slavery in the US. So in the 18th century, uh, there were people in the US who had no problem with slavery. And in fact, even praised it as a positive good. Today, you can hardly find anyone who would hold that position and you know, everyone would, would agree that slavery is gravely wrong. And that's a, that's a very good thing. Thanks be to God. That, I mean, I think that's, that's the truth of the matter. It is gravely wrong. But something like that is posited as evidence that there are no claims to moral rightness or wrongness that transcend a given historical period. Because we can come up with an example where something that someone in the past thought was right uh, people today think is wrong. Okay. Um, there are also other versions of this you can find. Um, there are, uh, you find it in, uh, uh, now in, in law schools, there's a form of thought called uh, uh, critical legal theory, which, which I knew 25 years ago in the United States. Now uh, in the US at least, critical theory has become uh, a, a wider phenomenon and you find it in more places. Legal positivism, uh, for example, a legal theory holds that right and wrong depends on what the positive law says, that is what the, what the public authority says the law is. And that's, that's all there is to the question. You can't go any deeper than that. So on a view like this, if the Supreme Court of the United States declares a new right to do X, then doing X must be morally acceptable. And uh, then people say, all right, well, we, we now know that that's, that's okay to do. The law says it's okay, therefore it's okay. Um, you also have uh, in, in a more, you know, immediately contemporary permutations of critical theory, uh, very strong critiques that um, everything around us is culturally or socially constructed and is really in the end, not based on on some reality. Uh, so the criminal law, what we regard as mental illness, human sexuality, uh, these are the arguments of Michel Foucault. All of these things are culturally or socially constructed. They're products of human willing. They are not based in the objective nature of things, uh, which he would say doesn't really exist. Um, okay, so that's a very serious challenge to a theory of truth. I, I could say uh, if you go if you go into that territory, you're going into a swamp, a quagmire, and you're going to need to find your way out somehow. And in fact, I think um, people who find themselves uh, surrounded by that kind of uh, mode of thought, um, they may begin to speak it. They may begin to act on it in certain domains, 
but you can't really act on it fully consistently in the whole of your life because it's incompatible with living in the real world where you are inevitably going to make some judgments. Uh, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. So I think um, Aquinas is giving us a way to understand the real, uh, well, what's really around us and to have a theory of truth that's connected with that, that can help us find a way out. And in fact, I think everybody uh, is living in that world. Um, so perhaps uh, all of you know who St. Thomas Aquinas uh, was, who he is, a uh, little bit about him. Since we're the Thomistic Institute, let me just throw out a, a little plug for the, uh, the, the thought of Thomas Aquinas. Um, he was a Dominican friar. He lived in the 13th century. Uh, he uh, taught at the University of Paris. He uh, taught in some other places. He's one of the great figures in the Western philosophical and, and uh, theological tradition. Um, so he's, he's one of the greats. He's up there with, I think, rightly, uh, with Plato, Aristotle, uh, and some of the other greats. He wrote his great work, the Summa Theologiae, and uh, that's probably the, the one work that you'd be most familiar with if you've, if you've read some of him before. If you want to learn more about the thought of Aquinas, we have uh, developed over the past couple of years a, a YouTube video series called Aquinas 101. Maybe some of you have, have seen it, um, and I, I would encourage you to go check it out. Aquinas101.com is a great place to, uh, well, we created those videos just to be short videos. They're animated to try and introduce people to the thought of, of Aquinas in kind of a systematic way. But there's lots of other resources out there. Um, the uh, uh, one, of your, one of your Australian um, uh, co-citizens uh, has the Pints with Aquinas podcast, which I know is very popular. Um, and uh, in America, you know, listening to a guy with an Australian accent is really cool. People think it's, it's very sophisticated. So um, all the more reason for us to have a Thomistic Institute chapter in Australia, well, our, our stock is going to go up if we can get some of you showing up in our in our recordings, because people are going to be like, wow, that, those, those guys, they, they know where it's at. Um, so, all right, so what is truth, according to Aquinas? I think uh, maybe the biggest heading that I want to put out there for Aquinas is that truth is the result of an encounter with reality. So truth actually is about what is real. Maybe that's uh, a really obvious and um, basic thing to say, but it's useful to underline. For Aquinas, it's connected with being. So we're actually making a claim about what is real, what exists. So I asked my, this was uh, quite a number of years ago, I have a much younger brother. And when he was just a, a little kid, I asked him, um, how, how would you define the truth? And he said, well, it's when your mom or dad asks you what happened and you tell them what really happened instead of making something up, which, you know, okay, that's, that, that's actually not a bad understanding of the truth for, you know, somebody who's maybe seven years old. Um, and that's right. When we're talking about the truth, we're talking about what's really there uh, or what really happened, what actually exists. So it's not only about something in the past, but it can be, we're, we're often speaking about uh, being as it is now. In Aquinas' day, there were lots of definitions current in the university, you might say, about how to define truth. But from the beginning of his career, he puts forward a classic definition, um, which came to be, you know, kind of the, the, main, uh, the main line 
view among uh, disciples of Aquinas. And it goes like this. Truth is the adequation of the thing and the intellect. Okay, so that needs to be unpacked a little bit. Let me just say it again. It's the adequation of the thing and the intellect. That's technical scholastic terminology. So what does that mean? Uh, he's talking about truth. I mean, first of all, truth is about reality. It's about being. The, the thing is real. There's something real out there. And it's about the mind knowing that, knowing that reality, knowing that thing, and knowing it with some accuracy so that in some way, what is in the world is now coming to exist in your mind. Okay, so the human mind, if we want to put this in context, the human mind is made to know. It's made to know the truth. Aristotle begins one of his uh, greatest works, his metaphysics, with the statement, all human beings desire to know. He thinks, he thinks it's the most characteristic human activity. Uh, why is that? Well, I mean, we have a lot in common with lots of other beings. We have in common with rocks that we want to stay in being. Rocks are very good at, at staying in being. Um, we have in common with like trees, apple trees, for example, that we grow and we try to create offspring. Um, I mean, apple trees, that's like kind of largely what they do. Um, we have in common with animals that we have a sensitive appetite. We have uh, bodily senses. We can move towards the goods that we perceive through our senses. Uh, we can enjoy certain sensible goods. Dogs and cats do that. But what is the most distinctive feature about our human nature and one of the most important ways of how we differ from the rest of the visible or material creation is that we can understand things. We can understand them abstractly. We are homo sapiens. When Linnaeus came up with his taxonomy of different species, that's the name he gave to our species. And although he wasn't a Thomist, and, and maybe, you know, we, we uh, you know, a Thomist might disagree with some of the presuppositions uh, behind his classifications of species, that at least is tracking something that's profoundly uh, correct in Aquinas's view. We are understanding man. I mean, if, if you wanted to uh, translate that literally, or man who is wise, capable of wisdom. We're not just homo erectus. We're not just standing upright, uh, which would just be a physical description. Uh, that's not the most distinctive thing about us, that we walk on two feet. Um, or that we have opposable thumbs. I mean, those are great things. Uh, but the greatest thing is the human mind, which is made to know. And that, in a certain way, is connected to not only the most characteristic human activity, but also to what is going to make us happy. So human beings desire to know. And when we are systematically frustrated in knowing or when we are lied to, we are unhappy. So that's also something that's helpful to see. We need purpose in our lives. And people without a sense of purpose tend to be depressed. Human beings are frustrated when they don't seem to have some understanding of what their life means and where it's going. Or they feel very betrayed when they discover that someone has been systematically misleading them. 
Augustine famously says, I have known many people who desire to deceive, but I don't know those who desire to be deceived. Now, maybe you could say, well, Father, I, I know some cases where somebody would like, they actually don't mind being lied to. Um, we, we do, in certain cases, deceive ourselves. That's, but that seems to me to be a, a kind of defect of what the intellect is made for. At some point, everyone seems to ask a question like, what is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of my life? Why am I here? What should I do with my life? What is the meaning of suffering and death? I mean, we do confront this as we go through life, inevitably. Is there life after death? These are questions that actually turn out to be highly significant questions. And they're really important questions. And uh, I think they're questions that actually can have answers. So it's important for us to move towards those answers, important for our, for our successes as human beings. In fact, it's a kind of teleology or the purpose in a way of our intellects is to know. Incidentally, a Thomist would also say, it's the reason why we have language. Language is, is there. It's a kind of uh, outgrowth of our intellectual nature that we're able to use language and communicate with each other. And that's for the sake of being able to manifest what's in my mind to you and you to be able to manifest what's in your mind to me. That's, that's what language exists for. Because we have these minds capable of grasping something, we, we then want to communicate it with others. Okay, so truth has something to do with the mind having contact with reality. Uh, and in fact, for Aquinas, it's the adequation or the, the right grasping, you might say, of the mind of something that is in reality. Um, so we've arrived at the truth when the idea we have in our mind matches or corresponds to in some way the reality of the thing in the world. Um, Aquinas writes this. The intellect, insofar as it is knowing, when it's actually knowing, must be true so far as it has the likeness of the thing known. His, his view is actually that our minds are capable of, as it were, taking in the world in a certain way. So that the, the things in the world begin to exist in a new mode, as it were, in the mind, as it grasps what they are. And he goes on, for this reason, truth is defined by the conformity of the intellect and the thing. And hence, to know this conformity is to know truth. So um, on this view, then, Aquinas's view, truth presupposes a mind that can understand and is in its first sense the sense that we've been talking about, the adequation of the thing in the intellect, is in us, it's in the mind. All right. But Aquinas also has a second dimension to the way he talks about truth, and this is also important and helpful, helpful for us to recognize. He says the truth is, in a sense, also in things. What does he mean by that? Okay, think of a carpenter who's making a table. The carpenter has an idea in his mind of what he wants to make. And then after he makes the table, he 
he can evaluate how well it turned out. And you can imagine a carpenter, especially a novice carpenter, I mean, if it was me in the carpentry shop, uh, saying, yeah, you know, that table didn't really turn out right. Uh, it wasn't true to the idea that I had of it. And that's because there was some defect, maybe in the wood, maybe in the tools, maybe in my ability to use the tools, you know, so I, I wasn't able to really get the corner square or something like that. Um, a table then can be true insofar as it accurately corresponds to what a table is supposed to be. So we can have this experience like if you eat a really good apple and you're like, that is a true apple. I mean, that's like really getting at what an apple is supposed to be. Or, you know, like that's the real margarita, you know, the real margarita is only found at this restaurant, whatever, you know, you could imagine somebody saying that. Um, and, uh, and Aquinas recognizes there's a sense, a, a, a correct sense that we speak about truth in things. And there, what we're talking about is that things correspond to the true idea in the mind, you might say, of the original author. All right, and, and maybe you see where we're going with this, because actually Aquinas would say, God has an idea of what things he's making in the world. And sometimes they fall short. So uh, that's true also about us. God has an idea about what a human being should be, and we sometimes fall short. And in that sense, we cease to be truly human. We can become, in a certain way, less than human. Uh, and, and that's a terrible tragedy when that happens. So this is bringing us, in a way, to the zone of moral truth. Notice that when we started uh, this conversation about truth, um, we're talking about like knowing accurately the things that are out there. And that works for like just standard scientific, you know, scientific uh, investigations. They're discovering aspects of the real world. And, and that there's no problem, I think, in general in the university in recognizing that that may be possible in some respect. There are some radical skeptics who thinks that our, think that our minds don't have any contact with, the rea with reality or that we can't really know that, that uh, this is real out there. Um, but that's not most people. Uh, but as we move forward, actually in Aquinas, there's not a big change happening when you move from understanding that your mind can know what we might call scientific truths to moral truths. Because in fact, moral truths are related to these other truths that we might uh, describe in a modern mentality as scientific. This is one domain of truth. It's all grounded in reality because when we're talking about moral truths, we're not just talking about commandments or obligations or what someone else or even God judges to be right and wrong. We're also talking about what leads to perfection, the perfection of a thing, which is what is good for it. Uh, so morality is about how to attain the good in a classic Thomistic understanding. It's not just about commandments and what some alien mind judges is right and wrong. It's actually about what is going to be good and how do I get there? 
And what is going to be bad for me? And how do I avoid it? And those are the, the most basic and fundamental, the most important moral questions. Because we, we are free creatures, it's up to us to make judgments with our minds and to enact with our wills the path forward towards the good. And that actually is rooted in the truth, the truth about what kind of beings we are and what is really going to be perfective of us or what's going to lead us to our happiness. So what is the path to happiness? What is the meaning of my life? These are moral questions and they're related to the kind of beings we are. If we uh, re reflect a little bit about uh, these questions about truth, we see that you can go from talking just about logical propositions or scientific statements to bigger questions that do deeply impact uh, our, our way of thinking about the world. So for example, um, if you were uh, thinking about entering religious life, suppose you enter religious life and you're, you're a Dominican novice and you're coming up on the day when you're supposed to profess your vows, uh, you need to sort of ask yourself, well, why am I here? Why am I doing this? Is this the right thing for me to do? Uh, and there can be bad reasons to profess vows as a religious. Maybe I'm doing it because I'm just trying to be important in the world. Maybe I'm doing it because my mother wants me to do it. Um, that's, that's not a sufficient reason uh, to, to devote the whole of your life to something. But maybe I'm doing it because God is really calling me to this way of life. And asking, like, what's the truth about my life and my vocation? That's, that's actually a really, really important, existentially important question. But it's not something that I can, like, go out into the world and run a scientific experiment to test. Likewise, uh, when I ask, like, does my, does my spouse or does my mother uh, really love me? You know, I have to. Uh, that, that's there is a truth there that may be profoundly important to my life. Um, and that's a domain where actually I have to depend on the word of another. A scientific experiment is, is not going to be enough to give me the answer. We also could look at some of the contemporary uh, scientific advances that we've made, which can be very powerful. I mean, scientific research into the nature of the world uh, has lots of great um, fruits. But it also can pose real uh, dangers, you might say. So scientists are able to build a nuclear weapon. Uh, physics can tell you how to do that. Can physics tell you whether it's right to use a nuclear weapon in a particular circumstance? Uh, well, it turns out that's actually a really important question. And there is an answer to that. Uh, but it's an answer that purely scientific investigation uh, can't give you. So there are other kinds of truth that actually are extremely important. So moral questions, uh, they're related to what is real. Um, and it's possible for our mind to know them. And that's what I'd like to now uh, talk about a little bit. How, how would Aquinas talk about truth in this domain? Because that's where it seems to be most controverted. Aquinas would say moral truth is ultimately about aiming at the perfection or the good for a thing, for human beings, 
That's going to be happiness, according to Aquinas. And that has very much to do with the kind of beings we are. So we have to know something about what we are in order to know what we ought to be or what we ought to do so that we will flourish as the kind of beings we are. How do we figure this kind of thing out? It's not super complicated, uh, even if it's sometimes difficult to know exactly all the answers. And some examples will help us see this. Uh, suppose that you have an apple orchard. Um, I have a Dominican confrere whose family owns an apple orchard. Uh, so I think of him when I, when I talk about this example. They have a bunch of, of apple trees. They're trying to make a living selling uh, the, the produce of these apple trees. Um, so uh, what makes for a good apple tree? Well, you want it to produce good fruit and good apples. In order to do that, you may have to develop a kind of practical wisdom experimenting with the time of year you harvest the fruit or how you prune the tree or how you water it or fertilize it or how much sun it gets, where you plant it. Um, or even what kind of climate this particular type of this variety of tree likes versus that variety of tree. So over time, you can develop a kind of practical wisdom about how to grow good apples. And it will be based partly on experience. But what you're learning over that is you're learning through time what makes this kind of apple tree flourish, what leads it to its proper perfection as an apple tree. You have to pay attention to the tree and what, what contributes to its perfection. Now, apple trees are relatively simple creatures compared to more complicated things like, I don't know, raising sheep or raising horses. Um, those are more complicated beings and there's more ingredients to doing a good job at raising sheep or raising horses. But it's much more complex again when we talk about human beings. What is it that makes a human being turn out well? Well, that's actually a, a much more complicated question, but it is possible in a way to go about it in the same mode as understanding a flourishing apple tree. We can acquire over time a kind of received wisdom about what is going to make human beings happy. And this is going to be based in part on what human beings are and what is most characteristic about us. And one of the things that's most characteristic about us is that we have minds made to know and also wills made to love. So we're going to need friendship, communion in the truth, justice, a kind of common life that allows us to share those things together. Um, there's a lot more things we could say by going down this path. That's really another talk, a talk maybe about happiness, uh, which is not our subject today. So I want to keep the focus on truth. But the point is, Aquinas thinks that there are real truths to be discovered there, and the mind really can know them. And they make a very great difference when you discover them. Uh, given this very brief overview of what Aquinas says about truth, let me try to offer some responses to contemporary skepticism or relativism. I think there are three general uh, responses or problems with these, uh, with these relativistic 
theories. The first problem is, I'm going to frame this in a kind of technical philosophical way. They violate what philosophers call the principle of non-contradiction. Maybe you've heard of that principle. Uh, it's a very simple, straightforward principle. And there's a great video by Father James Brent on Aquinas 101 uh, about this if you, if you don't, if you want to learn more about it. Um, but the principle of non-contradiction basically says that uh, something cannot both be and not be in the same respect and at the same time. So you see, actually, it's framed with respect to being. And our minds intuitively grasp that this is true, this proposition. Something cannot both be and not be in the same respect and at the same time. If you deny that, that principle, then you can't engage in any kind of rational discourse. Aquinas thinks you don't prove that principle. It's self-evident to the mind. And every rational, every rational discourse has to presuppose it just to get off the ground. Otherwise, you, you end up with a meaningless, uh, meaningless discourse. And even God is not capable of making something both exist and not exist in, in the same respect and at the same time. Why? Because that's a meaningless idea. Uh, and God is actually uh, being itself. He's, he's uh, truth itself. So all the forms of relativism violate the principle of non-contradiction insofar as they purport to make an absolute truth claim that is valid in every time, every culture, every language. And yet their very point is to deny that there are any absolute truths that transcend every time, every culture, every language. So when they say something like, all truths are historically dependent, they're making a claim that is not a historically dependent truth on their account. Likewise, when they say that all truth is conditioned by culture, they're saying all truths except for this one truth, which is that all truths are conditioned by culture. So in other words, in a philosophical mode, we could say they fail the, the test of self-reference. You cannot apply their theory back to themselves. In fact, it's a self-contradictory claim. And in the end, philosophically, we could say it's a meaningless claim. It's a statement that, in, that contains an internal contradiction. That's the first major objection to theories of relativism. Second objection, uh, which is related, these theories don't practice what they preach. If we're going to evaluate past uh, cultures, for example, or other cultures existing at the same time as our own, or make claims about the moral system of that language group versus the moral system of this language group, you have to be able to transcend the difference between those things and, as it were, grasp both things that you're comparing at the same time. But, of course, that implies that you are able to transcend the limits of your own culture. And that very activity suggests that the claim, the strong claim of moral or historical or cultural relativism uh, isn't, isn't really uh, the case. 
And in fact, we sometimes do see people critiquing their own culture from within. Often we hold them up as kind of moral heroes. Uh, so an example in, in the United States, maybe you're familiar with it, would be the civil rights movement in the 1960s in the US. So somebody like Martin Luther King. Um, Martin Luther King, he came out of an American culture that he identified had a serious problem. And he was able to critique it from within. He actually appealed to elements of his own tradition, of our tradition, in order to show that the tradition was not living up to its own ideals. That's only possible because uh, it's able to actually transcend the immediate cultural pressures or the, the social and, and cultural forces or religious forces that you've grown up in. You can stand as it, way, as it were outside of them and offer a critique of them. The third uh, reason why these, these theories tend to fail, it's very hard to hold on to a position as an absolute moral relativist. Um, and, and most people are pretty uncomfortable uh, doing that because in the end, most of us wanna say, well, you know, like the Holocaust, Nazi Germany's uh, awful attempt to exterminate a whole, you know, a whole race as it were, that awful attempt was really wrong and we wanna condemn it. Uh, and if we're going to do that, we have to be able to appeal to some universal standard that transcends a particular culture because of course the positive law in Germany in the late, late 30s, early 40s seemed to permit or even to authorize uh, this kind of terrible crime against humanity. All right, let me uh, draw to a conclusion by uh, noting that moral relativism uh, or a failure to acknowledge objective truth, even in the moral domain, can be very, very bad, not only for uh, life on campus, where we really need to have a, an engagement with the real and with uh, seeking the truth, but it's also disastrous for politics. Um, in the classical sense of the word, politics concerns the common good of the political community, the polis. So politics is about the way we search for the good for our community in common. So the classic exercise of politics is not just like horse trading, trying to get, trying to enact my will or something that's favorable to me, but that we deliberate in common about what is really good for us, for us as a community and how to achieve it. Now, of course, there's, there's going to be disagreements about that. Different people are going to have different assessments of what is good and how to get there. Even in uh, a very cohesive group like the Dominican Order or like uh, my Dominican Priory, there can be real disagreements about how to achieve the good. And we have to talk about that. Um, okay, so being able to talk about that and recognizing that there, that there is actually a good out there that we're trying to attain is very important for this kind of discourse, for this kind of process, for politics in general. The problem is if we accept the theoretical discourse about moral relativism, or if we allow the language, relativistic language to become the normative language for our political conversations, which unfortunately I think largely we have done, at least in my culture, then the unavoidable judgment that we need to make about what is really good here that underlies political discourse 
becomes hidden from view. And that can be dangerous. Why? Uh, let me give you a quote from St. John Paul II, whose feast day we just celebrated yesterday. He's one of my great heroes. Um, and he recognized this problem very clearly, having grown up under two terrible uh, totalitarian regimes. So he suffered under first the Nazis in Poland, and then under uh, Polish communism imposed by the Soviet Union. Um, and both of those experiences taught him that relativism comes with a monstrous human cost. So this is a quote from his great uh, encyclical, Veritatis Splendor, The Splendor of the Truth. He writes, totalitarianism arises out of a denial of truth in the objective sense. If there is no transcendent truth in obedience to which man achieves his full identity, then there is no sure principle for guaranteeing just relations between people. Their self-interest as a class, group, or nation would inevitably set them in opposition to one another. If one does not acknowledge transcendent truth, then the force of power takes over, and each person tends to make full use of the means at his disposal in order to impose his own interests or his own opinion with no regard for the rights of others. So, in other words, what St. John Paul II is saying there, I think it's it's prophetic and deeply worrying, is that when we lose the ability to talk about some truth that transcends our own personal opinions, some truth that's really out there, and even that points us to uh, what is above this world, then we cease to be able to regulate or resolve our differences among us by reference to some common standard. And all that's left then is the imposition of power for whatever I will. And that's disastrous for human beings. When politics just becomes an exercise of power, then arguments really become just instruments of power. They don't become the search for the truth. And that's profoundly dehumanizing to us who have a desire to know and to seek the good. Basically, we're saying, no, there's, there's no such thing. So I'm just going to try to oppress people who are opposed to my view and get my way. And that means that in the end, the only way to resolve any disagreements is by violence. So it comes down to who's stronger and who can impose. Uh, that's, that's a terrible model uh, for how we live in common. And it's a belief in truth that actually allows us to escape it and to say, actually, there is something outside of all of us to which we look and which can, in a way, be the, the, the measure and guide for the decisions we make. The, the full and perfect freedom, let me just conclude with this thought, the full and perfect freedom that God offers us uh, is actually to know the truth. You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free our Lord says. And the ultimate good of the human being is to know that truth in absolute fullness as we see God face to face. That requires the supernatural life of grace and ultimately the gift of glory, which God gives to the blessed. May he grant that gift uh, to us and how to obtain that, that light of grace and ultimately that light of glory. That's perhaps a topic for another time.
but that brings us, I think, to the end of this kind of brief review of Aquinas on Truth. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Father. Uh, like all Dominicans, your talk was both very precise and very profound. I, I would like to ask, do you have any time for Q&A or do you have to head off now? No, I've got time. Awesome. So for q and I've got as much time as you guys have. Oh, excellent. So for Q&A, I guess what we'll do is if you have a question, you can use the raise hand function on Zoom. And as long as you've clicked that, your hand will stay raised. So Andreas has a question. I'll go Andreas, you can go. Hi, hi Father. Um, first of all, thank you for that amazing talk. Uh, I've, I follow you in Domestic Institute videos and you're one of my favorite speakers. I'm really honored to be able to talk to you. And as a fellow lawyer, I'm studying law right now. My question is going to be oriented um, to the conception of rights and subjective rights. You gave a talk about subjective rights, I think in 2017, and I really liked your conclusions. Uh, but you mentioned something about like, you know, like the current system that we have can be reformable to go back to that tradition of uh, that Thomistic tradition of subjective rights, which is different from the Lokian or Enlightenment tradition. And I would like your quick thoughts on, on what that would look like. What, what would you suggest that that reform would look like? Yeah, that's that's a really interesting and great question. It's nice to meet you, Andres, and I, I hope that uh, your law studies are. I mean, if you're if you're reading an article like that, uh, well, you know, all I can say is I'm I'm very flattered and glad to hear it. Um, the uh, so uh, this is uh, has become a bigger debate. It, it's there's an kind of ongoing debate on this subject. I think in in um, certainly in some of the philosophical legal circles that I uh, that I know. Um, my view is that. Um, you know, okay, if we were creating a system from zero, uh, then, you know, I'd, I'd say, all right, let's, let's look at the, at the great tradition. Let's look at Thomas Aquinas, try and come up with a, a good political system. I mean, in, in the United States, uh, in the 18th century, they actually did this, right? They, they, they broke off from the British crown and they said, we're going to create our own political system. And they had a convention and worked out a system that they were going to uh, institute um, in, in the United States, so this constitutional convention. Um, should, we, should we try to do something like that now? You know, should we say, hey, our system is not working, let's, uh, let's call timeout, let's have a constitutional convention, and let's completely reconfigure our political system. Um, and, Re-examine all of the presuppositions that our current system is built on. Uh, I think if we were to do that, like just the politically realist view is like, I think we'd end up with something much worse than what we've got right now, um, given the, the, dominant, uh, the dominant cultural forces and, and political forces that we're dealing with. Like, I just have no confidence that, uh, that we're going to end up some, with something that's more Catholic or more amenable to Catholic principles, not that, that being Catholic maybe is the is the standard that you'd want to put forward in a political discussion about uh, the right way to evaluate a political system. But I, I don't think it would lead to more justice. I don't think it would lead to better government. Um, so I think actually the system that we've inherited in the United States, uh, I don't know as much about the Australian political system. So I, I will I will uh, you know let some of you speak to that. But um, uh, I think the system that we've inherited is is 
pretty good. It's not perfect. It, it has problems. Um, and it, some of the problems have to do with the original, you know, it, it's, it's in some of the original presuppositions or some of the principles, you know? So, but I think that what we've got in the main is still, we can make a go of working within the system. So the goal there is then to find the principles that are the, the good principles and valorize and highlight those and help those become the dominant principles that govern the, the other things or, you know, kind of subordinate uh, the, the elements that are not consistent with uh, the, you might say, the, the great tradition and, and the line that we see forward. Uh, so that's seems to me like working within the system is the only realistic alternative that we have. Uh, and I think it is possible to do because I think this tradition of, um, uh, you know, like a Thomistic understanding of the good of the human person uh, and including the possibility of speaking about that in terms of rights. I mean, understanding rights as uh, actually a feature of the good of the human person and the good of the political community. Um, you know, that, that allows us to use the language of our current system, but orient it towards uh, things that are, you might say, perennial truths or perennial uh, central principles for the political order. So I don't know, that's, that's just a, a very short, maybe kind of vague and uh, ambiguous answer to your question. No, thank you, Father. That was really, that's more or less what I believe as well. Um, and just before I let the others ones, sorry, guys. Uh, do you agree with Orestes Brownson in thinking that the fathers, founding fathers made it better than they knew or, or no? Uh, yeah, oh, I, I think I do agree with that. Yeah, I mean, I, it's not perfect. And it has problems and we can see those problems, you know? So I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't say that there aren't even problematic principles also together with, with good principles, but there's a lot of good stuff in there. And I, I think practically speaking, it, it'd be hard to find something practically better. Thank you, Father. The next question is from Jordan. Um, hi, Father. So I have a question that actually has to do, um, to do with what you said towards the end. So more about the application of truth, particularly in relation to Thomism. And so it's sort of a, um, a general question, but it's based on like um, what someone like Father Gary Goulagrand would say in his time, where he says, like, in relation to the church, they, there's an issue of like the main issue is an issue of theology. And he promotes Thomism to, you know, as a fix to that. Now, talking about in our current situation now, how the world is now. Obviously, it's a different time. I still agree with some of the issues that Father Garugu said were there now. But when he talks about Thomism, he says, the um, particularly when he says it, why it's excellent, because just as you were saying in your talk, it doesn't deal with things relative to culture, relative to the human experience, but relative to being in nature um, and how that's why it's so excellent. That's why it's so good at you know being a way we study the truth. How do we use that today? And I asked that in like in, in light of like certain debates we have in regards to like IVF and even euthanasia currently in Australia, where it's really hard to argue it in a case that doesn't use the natural law. And even from experience of talking with people um, about these issues very simply and trying to get them to understand in a very charitable way, even when they do understand the issues and they're like, okay, I agree with you, but who cares? Metaphysics is redundant and it, they, they, they just can't seem to grasp any relevance it has now. Because um, it brings me to mind what I feel like to be impossible, at least in my experience, where Faisal, 
how he mocks all the atheists and so etc. And says that by rejecting metaphysics, they've created the metaphysics out of their respective field, whether it's psychology or philosophy. How do you deal with that then? Because if they've created their own system that is meant to be opposing my system without even knowing it, how can we fight things like euthanasia? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, it's and it's a challenge. Uh, so how do we? I mean, I think I think you can go about it by going back to some of the the basics of like building up the case. So if you and and appealing to the the fundamental like ground level experiential insights that uh, ha still have some traction. So if you try to just use um, abstract principles and say like oh, here's my natural law theory and I've got these natural law principles and that allows me to derive this conclusion. Um, that, that may be harder to get their, their agreement. You know, they, they don't see the starting points um, as, as you were just pointing out. But if you uh, use the kind of, I mean, so I, I got this example from um, uh, a, a professor of philosophy, actually also a professor of international law, who, um, you know, just thought that as a practical matter, just talking people through real world examples helps you see like, uh, for example, growing apples. Um, if you wanna grow apples that are successful, if you wanna be successful at growing apples, if you wanna get good apples, you need to know something about the apple tree. And knowing what makes the apple tree flourish is gonna teach you, like you'll learn over time, the things you need to do to get a good apple. So you have in view the, the goal, and then you begin to figure out the rules, as it were, of practical wisdom for how to behave. So then when you're, uh, you know, you, we could talk about um, all these other uh, examples, you know, sheep farming, or you could talk about, um, you know, there's, there's a whole industry of like life hacks, you know, how can you be better at falling asleep at night? Or um, how can you be better at uh, you know, making good contributions in meetings or, you know, whatever it is. I mean, these are the things that pop up in my, my newsfeed as it were. Um, and they, uh, okay. Th th those things can be useful. And then you want to ask, well, um, what is actually the flourishing human being as a whole? Um, and that's the question that people really want to know the answer to. And there you're, in a, you're asking a classic philosophical question, and it requires you to reflect on a little bit, what is the human being? Like, what is, what is characteristic about human beings? Is, for example, bodily health enough? And I think when you, when you frame the question that way, people are able to say, well, yeah, no, it, it's, it's not enough. I mean, the, the pandemic has taught us we can take radical measures to protect bodily health and those measures, especially when, when isolated from other human goods, like when we just say, oh, the, the objective is bodily health and we're not going to pay attention to other human goods, it can become inhuman. Uh, you, you, you don't get to have any communion with other people because you're afraid of getting a virus, something like that. Okay, when that, when that happens, um, we, we begin to see that like, oh, there's a malformed understanding of the human of the human being here. Um, and there are other goods that the human being is made for that we need to somehow respect. So then when you're gonna talk about euthanasia, of course, that's, that's a, that's a, requires a lot of, of, um, of work to get to the point where 
we can understand the meaning of, uh, of medicine and also of suffering and the place of like, what's the role of, of medicine in the context of the whole of a life? Like what is medicine protecting? What is, what is it aiming at? Um, so things like that. I don't know if I've fully answered your question, but I think that's the direction you'd have to go. You have, you have. Thank you, Father. So next question is from Lorenzo. Hi, Father. First, I'd like to kind of make a mention. I think someone's already said it before that I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the Thomistic Institute. And I, you know, I watch a lot of your lectures and videos and, and I use it in my own material to help kind of to instruct others about the truth of That's great. the faith and stuff. So I guess the question that I have is a more like a practical bent, similar, like I guess more even more specific than Jordan's previous question. And like, so I guess I'll start with like a case study I've made. So like, I know, I, I know of at least one person in my mind that, you know, I, I talk to regularly, I'm friends with, and I can, you know, readily share with them. I not, not explicit, not explicitly tell them that it's, you know, from the Catholic tradition or from Thomism, but, you know, when asked about certain moral positions that I stand in, I, I can, I give them an answer that's it conforms with, you know, with the teaching of the church and the reasoning of you know, Aquinas and all that. And, and they, they seem to, they seem to readily accept that. And they think, you know, that like, it seems as if that, that system, that kind of worldview is coherent and consistent and they find that interesting they may even perhaps consider it to be true but i think the biggest stumbling block is at the end of all those conversations it seems to be that they would like they take what i they take what i've kind of professed to them and they seem to compart like they the i get the impression that they would compartmentalize it by like saying well you know it's just you know it's your truth you know it's like what you said at the beginning of the talk right and I guess I find it a real stumbling block because whenever, whenever that, whenever it hits that point, I don't know how to kind of continue that without being, you know, uncharitable and mean and all that. So my question goes to kind of the practical aspects of that. So how can I find, I guess, the best, most charitable way to relay the, I guess, the objections against relativism of all, of all types, especially to a friend of mine? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think it requires some sensitivity. You know, the um, we could ask, why do people find these relativistic positions attractive? Um, and I mean, one might just be we're surrounded by it and we're you're kind of, you know, you're bombarded with it all the time. Um, but uh, I do think it's possible to transcend that. I mean, that's the whole point of my talk. Like you're not just completely culturally conditioned. It's possible. It's possible to escape that. Um, and people do it. The mind is made for that. Um, okay. So we should be optimistic that the mind is made for that. Um, and I found that like in teaching undergraduates, uh, who come in with these presuppositions, like we can't be morally judgmental. They're very uncomfortable making moral judgments. And so they're going to, they're going to retreat into that if you start like making too strong of a, of a moral uh, judgment. So, but I found that it would be um, helpful to start with a novel with them. So we would read a novel where uh, there are some good moral questions posed by the fictional characters or the situations they find themselves in. And then when you talk about that, you may be like, yeah, did that character handle that uh, well? And then they're, 
they're ready to make a moral judgment and be like, no, 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 that's, you know, that's terrible what that person did. Um, because they're, they're not making a judgment on a real person. They're making a judgment as it were on a fictional person. And it can kind of uh, limber them up to see that actually we, we are able to make a judgment in some cases. Now, I think it's also very important to emphasize that um, we don't want to judge persons or condemn persons. You know, the classic line is uh, love the sinner and hate the sin or condemn the sin. Um, and that also, I think, is part of the impulse that you find strongly in, in a lot of contemporary contexts where people don't want to feel like they're condemning other people. Uh, so that is a helpful thing to reiterate. You know, Aquinas also has a theory about this of rash judgment. He says, uh, you know, we can judge the things that we see. We should not presume to judge the things that we cannot see. And one of the things that we cannot see is the intentions of another person's heart. So we can make a judgment that this exterior conduct is not the right thing to do, but we would be making a rash judgment if we presumed to make a, uh, like to see into the person's heart and therefore draw a, a, a judgment like, oh, this person is like definitely going to hell, something like that. You know, people, in, in, at least in the American context, when you start talking about morality, People immediately think that what you're talking about is like getting the Bible and hitting them over the head with it, specifically about sex. Uh, you know, so that's typically what that's immediately where their mind goes. Um, and uh, to say, actually, morality is about the search for the good. It's about the search for happiness. And um, these things are are a part of the picture, because like if you go down certain paths, you're heading towards uh, personal unhappiness and disaster in your life. You know, like somebody who gets addicted to heroin is headed towards disaster and unhappiness. You're going to make yourself wretched over time. People kind of understand that. And you say, well, there might be some other things that you could do that will also lead you into a disaster. And in fact, the some of the things that um, are put put out there as you know sexually liberating might actually be leading you into a kind of dead end where you're going to at best be wasting your time and at worst uh really like breaking your heart and uh, making it harder for you to experience love and deep lasting satisfaction in your life um and it's gonna kind of damage you know, damage your own, your own happiness. And that's actually also at stake in, in what we're talking about when we talk about, about morality. So it's not just like we have these commandments and I'm going to, I'm going to control you by hitting you over the head with the Bible, you know, which is, which is what I think sometimes people think you're, you're trying to do. Uh, the last thing I'd say is that sometimes people um, are reluctant to make judgments about others because they may implicitly recognize that if I do that about them, there's things about my own life that I'm going to have to change. Uh, and I, I know that I don't want to do that. Um, so finding a way to speak to that in, in, you know, the people you're talking to might be helpful. I'm not sure that I've 
giving you the final answer. You know, thank you, thank you. Reflections, Mike, you've answered you've answered much of uh, what I was thinking of, and you've given me a lot of you know, food for thought. So, thank you for that. That's really helpful. Uh, just to check with you, Father, are you good for a few more? Or, yep, yeah. All right, Darwin, you're up. Hello, Father. I was um, wondering what your opinions on monarchy is. If it's on monarchy, yeah. Uh, well, um, I don't live in a in a monarchy, uh, so you know. But uh, I, you know, certainly I I know I, I follow the activities of Queen Elizabeth from a distance, and you know, I I I wish her well. Um, I hope she flourishes. I think uh, you know, um, there's a there are certain circles in like in the United States where you know you can meet people who who say, "Gosh, wouldn't it be great if we had a, a Catholic monarch?" Um, uh, well, um, I mean, I think we, we don't, <laughs> we don't have a Catholic monarch, uh, first of all. Um, I mean, certainly Aquinas, if you just want to look at historically, you know, Aquinas thought that, uh, uh, you know, monarchy was a, was a, a good option, uh, as a form of governance, but he didn't think it was the only option. And there, there was a plurality of, of religious system or, uh, political systems, uh, in medieval Europe, they weren't all exactly the same. Um, and actually the levels of authority were rather varied. So sometimes what people mean when they, when they talk about monarchy, you know, they may have, um, rather different presuppositions from, from the practical way that monarchy worked in, uh, you know, in the, in the ancient world, in the middle ages, in the Renaissance, in the early modern period, um, and there may be reasons why the the systems have evolved uh, to to what they what they are now. Uh, so it, it's it's not just a simple question like oh monarchy versus democracy, you know, as if that those were obviously you know well defined uh, alternatives. So I don't I don't know if I'm really answering your question. I, when I was uh, in Fribourg, so I did my doctoral studies in Switzerland at the University of Fribourg, and. Uh, I actually knew some of the Habsburgs who were in exile in Freiburg. The Habsburgs, of course, being the um, you know the the aristocratic family or the the royal family for the the um, well what was called the the holy you know the Holy Roman Emperor. Um, so the the uh, Austro-Hungarian um, emperor, and uh, they were some impressive people um, actually. Uh, but, uh, you know, that, um, would, if you look at the, at the history of say the 19th century, 18th, 19th century, uh, Habsburg emperors, um, yes. Okay. They were Catholic. Also, sometimes there were big problems there. Um, so the, uh, what's called Josephism, the emperor, uh, Joseph, he shut down a lot of the religious orders in the, the empire and under his jurisdiction because he did not think that they should, that there should be um, like groups devoted just to the contemplation of God. He wanted to turn them all into like charitable operations in collaboration with the state. Um, that's actually, that's not good at all for, for the church. It was disastrous. Um, so even Catholic monarchs, uh, have not always worked out well uh, for the church. So the history is, is complicated. And if you were to look at um, 
you know, the Byzantine empire where you had a kind of alliance of throne and altar, uh, that didn't always work out very well for the church either. Uh, it made the church too tied to um, political, political and, and uh, um, you might say, you know, power politics um, or, or what the ruler wanted. So I, I think there's, you know, there's reasons why the system evolved as it did. Thank you, Father. Awesome. Uh, next question from Andrew. Hi, Father. I hope you're doing well. Thank you for the talk tonight. Uh, it was very illuminating. Um, I have a question which which was uh, sort of hinted at by Father Aquinas in the last talk. He sort of made a joke saying that the uh, these talks are, are a bit out of order, saying that the talk on truth should have uh, should have happened first. So my question is just simply, um, why does truth come before goodness? Yeah, that's a good question. And, and you know, uh, we have this morning the installation of acolytes here. So, Father, that's why we had to do the talks out of order. Um, uh, but the uh, so why does truth come before goodness? Very simple answer, according to Aquinas, is you cannot love what you do not know. Uh, and you love the good. So goodness refers to being under the aspect of desirability or being under the aspect of perfective, uh, you know, something perfective of a nature. Uh, whereas truth is just referring to the uh, sort of more directly to the being itself. So for Aquinas, uh, you cannot start with love. You have to start actually with knowledge because knowledge gives rise to love. As you, as you know something, you begin to love it. And actually, this is, um, this is a, helpful, uh, a helpful thing to, to note about, you know, just the way our, the way we're made, um, that, uh, it, it allow me maybe to, to slightly, you know, diverge from the, the core of your question. And this is a, this is something that Aquinas says that I, I have always found very beautiful and very helpful to repeat. So it's a point that I love to, to make in many different contexts. Uh, so allow me to go back to one of my, one of my old favorites, which is this, that, um, spiritual desires, work differently than desires for bodily things. That when you don't have a bodily good, like I'm thirsty, it's because I don't have enough water in my system and I desire water uh, because it's what I don't have. And when I've had enough to drink, I'm no longer thirsty. So the, the desire for it uh, goes away. But with spiritual things, it actually works the other way. When I don't have it, and when I don't know it, I don't desire it. And as I come to know it, and as I come to possess it, I desire it more and more. So like when you don't know the delights of the spiritual life, when you don't know, say, the peace that comes from being reconciled with God, that you get maybe through the sacrament of confession or the, the harmony with God that comes from a devout reception of the Eucharist. When you don't know those things, you don't desire them. You don't even really think they're possible. But as you, as you come to know them, you then begin to desire them. And then the more you experience them, 
the more you desire them. So you don't, what you don't have, you don't desire, but as you have it, you desire it more and more. And that's characteristic of, of the realm of, of the spirit rather than of the, of the flesh, as it were. Did I, did I do a sufficient job answering your question, Andrew? Uh, yeah, thank you, Father. It made perfect sense. Great. Awesome. Um, Gerard, would you like to go? Hi, Father. Just, I know you've heard it a thousand times tonight, but just massive fan of the Thermistic Institute and your work especially. But uh, my oh, question okay. is, what is your response to the Catholics? They'll, um, they'll quote the Bible and they go, judge not that ye be judged to defend moral relativism. How, how would you respond to that? Yeah, actually, um, you know, some people uh, also would use, uh, I don't know if you remember a few years ago, some years ago, um, Pope Francis was quoted in an airplane interview uh, where he, he said, uh, you know, basically the same thing, who am I to judge? Uh, and um, the, you know, he also published a book uh, about mercy where he says, well, as Catholics, we have to speak the truth about the nature of sin. And it's important for people to hear it because it's important for their lives. We shouldn't condemn persons. So that's, that's the classic Catholic position. Um, so when we say uh, judge not, Aquinas interprets that. Uh, I think the Catholic tradition more broadly interprets that to say, we should not try to make judgments about the interior motives of a person's heart. Um, as, as we were talking about before. But it doesn't mean that we don't make any judgments whatsoever. And in fact, it's a characteristic activity of our intellect to make judgments, to make judgments about reality. Technically speaking, if you look at, say, Aristotle, he says that there are two operations of the mind. One operation is called apprehension, simple apprehension. That's where you grasp like what a thing is. And the second operation of the mind is called judgment, which is where you, you put like subjects and predicates together and you make a judgment about whether it's true. So like this dog is brown. Um, you're gonna take the predicate brown and apply it to this dog and you're making a judgment that that is a true statement. That's actually really important for our intellects to do. Our intellects are made to make that judgment, and that judgment is based on reality. If we, if we were to try to cease making all judgments like that, well, our minds would cease to be minds, really. You know, they wouldn't be doing their proper activity. And every, every kind of intellectual activity, including scientific inquiry, is founded on judgment in that sense. Well, making a moral judgment I mean, this is part of the point of my talk, actually. Making a moral judgment is not qualitatively different from the kind of judgment we make when we say, this dog is brown. Uh, it would be sort of, uh, you know, if, if you were to say something like, um, human beings are unhappy when they don't have a purpose to their lives. I mean, that's also a statement we can make where we, we draw a judgment about the truth of the matter. Uh, and that is going to have implications for how we live our lives. So there's a moral component to a judgment like that about what are human beings, uh, what are we? 
and what what leads to our perfection. Thank you, Father. That was perfect. Just checking in with you again, Father. Are you good for a few more? I am. Excellent. Um, so I'm having a great time. This is this is you guys are awesome. The Thomistic Institute is is up and running already in 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 uh, Australia. Obviously, I'm very excited for that. Actually, um, so yesterday, I mean, we talked about the will being the faculty of the soul that that seeks the good, and the intellect being the faculty of the soul that that seeks truth. I also know that it's a bit of an age old debate about which is greater, the intellect or the will. Um, and I know traditionally the Dominicans side with the intellect, but I've heard that there are some dissenters among the Dominicans. So I wanted to ask your take and, and how the order effectively deals with, with those dissenters. Uh, well, we're, we're, a, we're a friendly fraternity. We, we love each other. And, you know, uh, the Dominican order is a, is a big tent. You don't have to be a Thomist to be a Dominican. You probably should know something about Aquinas. Um, and I certainly think that Aquinas is, is really helpful and gives you uh, a lot of traction on reality. Um, when I was first studying Aquinas, I was actually not a Dominican. Um, I did not become a Dominican because I wanted to be a Thomist. I became a Dominican because I was drawn to the charism of the order uh, that I saw in the life of St. Dominic and in the, the actual lives of the Dominicans that I met. Uh, which was a, a life of prayer, a life of uh, study, a life of preaching, um, the communal life, uh, the liturgical life. I found all of it uh, very, very attractive. And, um, uh, you know, I, I asked for the religious name of Dominic because I was uh, so so impressed and inspired by the figure of, of St. Dominic. Um, but I began to study Aquinas and during, uh, I think it was maybe the first year that I was studying Aquinas, I had a professor who used a line from Plato actually to describe Aquinas. So this is, uh, Plato says in, in one of his dialogues, he talks about um, being able to carve reality at the joints. I don't know, you know, in, in the United States, it's traditional to have turkey at Thanksgiving, you know. Um, and if you've ever had a, a, an entire roast turkey in front of you, or maybe you've just, if you've ever had a, well, if you just have ever had a chicken leg that has a, you know, a drumstick and a piece of the thigh connected, you, you need to know where the joint is, or you're going to make a mess of what you're doing. Um, and certainly if you're, if you're cutting up a turkey, you want to know where the joints are, and that's how you get good at carving the bird. Um, so to carve reality of the joints means to like understand how reality fits together. Uh, and I became convinced that Aquinas gives you the ability to carve reality at the joints. Um, so I think that's really valuable uh, for, for, you know, everybody and also for, for Dominicans, you know, to, to know something about Aquinas. Okay, I, I feel like I've maybe gotten off on a tangent. Your question was about the relationship between the intellect and the will or, or why the intellect has a kind of primacy. And yes, I think it's, I think it's just metaphysically true that, uh, you know, as, as we were saying a minute ago, you can't love what you don't know. Now, uh, in the spiritual tradition or the theological, uh, different theological traditions, theological schools, um, you have some who would say, uh, well, you know, the main work of theology or of the spiritual life is about the will. And so we should put that in the first place. Um, I think that's sometimes what's happening. 
when, you know, when you have some of these disagreements. Uh, but I think the, the Thomist, uh, you know, the classic Thomist response is, well, actually, uh, we do need to know first something about God and then, uh, and then love him. You know, so charity uh, comes with faith, you know, in the supernatural order, um, and they need each other. Uh, but there is a kind of primacy to, to, the, to what you know in faith that therefore erupts into charity. So Aquinas has this beautiful uh, way of talking about how this even structures the whole economy of salvation. You know, how does God save us? How has he saved us in, in the history of salvation? By sending his word, who is the one who proceeds in God by way of intellect, the word becomes flesh and enters the world breathing forth love. It's the incarnate word, Jesus Christ, who breathes forth the love of the Holy Spirit to the church. And that, that is the order uh, of, of processions, even in God. Uh, first, there's the procession of the Son from the Father by way of intellect. And then there's the procession of the Holy Spirit from the Father and Son by way of love, who is, who is love in person. And that's not to say that the Holy Spirit is less important than the Son. Uh, all, the th all three persons are absolutely equal and equally God. But there is a logical order among them, an order of procession. Wonderful, Father. Thank you. It's always good to see Dominican dominance asserted over Franciscans. Uh, Chrissy, uh, you're up now. Um, thank you, Father. This is probably more for a clarification than a question. Um, at the beginning, you uh, mentioned how truth um, is not the equation of the thing and the intellect. Um, and I suppose, if I understood what you were trying to say properly, that there is some concept of the thing in the mind, and then um, the actual thing has to conform to the concept of the thing. And um, I was wondering, how, how are we able to still hold the mysteries of faith as true when we cannot reach them by reason and we can only know them by revelation. Like how can we still have a concept of that thing in the mind? And if we can't have it, we probably could, but if we can't, then how can we still be able to make it conform to the actual thing itself? That's an awesome question. <laughs> and uh, I love this question. I love this topic. Um, it could be the subject for an entire talk about faith. Um, or even an entire course about faith. So there's a lot to say here. So I'll just try to uh, say a couple of quick things. Um, first, we cannot know from our knowledge in this world uh, what God is. So um, actually, there's really interesting. If you want to read more about this, um, Jean-Pierre Torel uh, has um, a, a book on St. Thomas Aquinas. It's actually a two volume biography of Aquinas called uh, St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, volume one is um, The Man and His Work, I think it's is the subtitle. Volume two is St. Thomas Aquinas, Spiritual Master. So in volume two, volume two is a great, a great book that kind of goes thematically through Aquinas' thought. And he has a whole chapter 
on our knowledge of God. So if you want to find a quick place to, to read something, uh, that's, that's what I'd refer you to. Uh, but basically, um, Aquinas says, we cannot know what God is. Uh, our natural knowledge is able to arrive in some respect at knowing what he is not. Because God is not a sensible being in the world. And we know principally through our senses. So we can have access to the things in this world and come to know what they are, or at least in some measure, we can get a pretty good grasp in some cases of what a tree is, what a stone is, what a, what a dog is. But we cannot grasp what God is. Uh, we can only, uh, in a certain way, negate what God is not. And we can recognize that God is beyond the things that we know. So we can ascribe certain perfections to him, like being omnipotent or being good, um, but we or being eternal or unchanging. But we can't really know fully what we're what we mean when we say that and apply it to God. Okay, so that means that our minds are always going to be left in a certain obscurity when we're talking about the reality of God. Um, however, God does reveal himself to us. And when he reveals himself, we hear truths told us about God, the evidence of which we do not see. So the the essential act of faith is to assent unconditionally to the truth that we hear based on the credibility of the witness or because we believe the witness. Uh, and so then we really do know, in a certain sense, a truth about God that he's revealing to us, even though we don't see directly the, the truth of it or the evidence of it. Um, so we simply have to trust the witness. And God, of course, is the ultimate witness who is absolutely trustworthy. But then we have all kinds of other uh, signs of credibility uh, surrounding, for example, the teaching of Jesus. He works these miracles. Ultimately, the greatest miracle is the resurrection that kind of confirms the truth of what he's telling us about God. And then we, we have the teaching of Jesus handed down to us through the apostles through the scriptures that the church authored through the church's living tradition. And those are all ways that we have access to the truth, even though we will not directly see face to face uh, the, the proof of that truth until we get to heaven. And in fact, Aquinas thinks that it's not possible for us to see the, the truth of God, what God is, as long as we remain in this world. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Father. Um, one last call for questions. Does anyone have a question they would like to ask? Uh, hi, Father. I was curious. Um, so you're a Dominican, um, and so you would pray a lot. Because, uh, and I was wondering, have you ever had like a mystical experience of God? Like a Meister Eichhardt. You know, Meister Eichhardt was Dominican. He had lots of mystical experiences. Have you ever had any of that sort of thing yourself? Uh, well, I, I um, let's see. How would I answer that? I. Uh, I think I should say yes. Um, I mean, some of these things are uh, very, you know, sort of, um, uh, well, I, I mean, I, I don't mind sharing some of the, uh, some of the fruits of what I've received uh, 
from God. I mean, it's not things that I often talk a lot about. I, I don't think, maybe, maybe I should say as a preface, um, I think sometimes people can become fascinated by the possibility of mystical experiences or extraordinary phenomena, something like that. Um, and God sometimes gives them to us in order to uh, strengthen us, in order to get us on the right track, in order to like get us moving. Um, they aren't necessarily the goal of the Christian life, you know, to have experiences, you know, supernatural experiences or something like that, or supernatural consolations. The goal of the Christian life is God. Now, when you see God, of course, that's, that's the, that's, the ultimate good. Um, and that's what we all uh, hope we will receive in eternity. Uh, but if you get too focused on like um, supernatural phenomena, uh, that can sometimes distract you from the Christian life uh, because the essence of the Christian life is faith, hope, and love. It's the, the living out of the theological virtues. Um, so that's that's really where uh, you'd want to be centered. Um, but I, I certainly, um, I mean, I had one very powerful experience, um, when I was discerning a vocation to the priesthood. Um, and I was, uh, I just sort of come to the conclusion that I thought God was calling me to the priesthood. And, um, uh, I was at mass one day, um, just a daily mass and kneeling in the pews, uh, with my, I think with my eyes closed, um, you know, and it was just after the consecration, the priest was praying the Eucharistic prayer. And I had a very, very uh, powerful sense, which sort of came out of nowhere, of the presence of, of Jesus in the Eucharist. Um, and, and speaking to me, uh, saying, um, if you do not eat, the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And if you eat his flesh and drink his blood, you have eternal life. And so I am willing to undergo all of the trials of the passion to be beaten and scourged and spat upon and crucified so that the nails would pierce my hands and the blood would come out and you would be able to drink it. Uh, that was a very powerful moment for me. I had never realized. I mean, I, I was raised Catholic. I, I was trying to grow in my faith. I'd never really grasped that the presence of Jesus in the Eucharist is tied to his passion, to, to the sacrifice that he offered on the cross for us, that the, that the Eucharist is the making present of that sacrifice so that we can share in it and that its fruit is our reception of the body and blood of Christ, which is what he offered on the cross. And he wants us to eat it and drink it so that it becomes our sacrifice. I mean, that was, uh, I mean, it's a, it's like a kind of an obvious, I mean, when you study theology, as I, as I later did, you study the Eucharist, 
Okay, it's an obvious truth. It's it's proclaimed in Catholic dogmas all over the place. Uh, you read it in, in papal encyclicals and in spiritual writers. That's all true, and I'm sure that I'd heard it before, but it never really sank sank in until that that moment, which was which was like a it was like a personal encounter with Jesus present in the Eucharist, and it it like opened a new window to me on what the Eucharist is and what the Mass is. Uh, and it was a great confirmation to me that Jesus was calling me to the priesthood. Yeah, it's beautiful, Father. Thanks for sharing. Yes, thank you, Father. That That's extraordinary. I think we'll call it uh, there for tonight or in the morning for you, Father. Uh, thank you once more. It was extremely, uh, was a, it was great. I mean, these, these last two nights have been extraordinary. And we're extremely grateful for this collaboration and we are even more excited at the prospect of, of starting up a chapter here. Uh, so definitely we'll be wanting to follow up on that. Um, so thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. This is, this is a huge boost uh, and shot in the arm for me. So this is an awesome way to start my Saturday. <laughs> thank you very much, Father. And as a reminder to everybody, uh, tomorrow night, night, 9 p.m. will be the final installment for this series so professor hibbs will be speaking on the topic of of beauty and uh he'll be uh, waking up 5 a.m so we all got to turn up so that we can uh, show him our thanks for that extraordinary effort uh yes uh, could you just end with a quick prayer for us father sure maybe we can uh just uh together invoke uh the, the blessing of the of the Blessed Virgin Mary, um, and uh, we can, I'll, I'll say it out loud, and, and you can pray along with me silently as we say the Memorare. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thy intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of Virgins, my mother. To thee I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word Incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy, hear and answer me. Amen. God bless you all.